Hello, and welcome to Converge, the number six tech podcast in the world, at least according to Pocket Casts, who I'm inclined to trust. I'm Casey Newton, Silicon Valley editor of The Verge, and episode three is here. And can I tell you how much fun I am having so far on Converge? Converge was featured last week as both new and noteworthy on Apple Podcasts. We're top 10 on Google Podcasts, and most importantly, we have been featured in your tweets. Thanks to everyone who shared the podcast last week featuring the official hashtag, which is, of course, Benghazi. It is hard to get a podcast off the ground in 2018, and y'all are doing so much work on our behalf, and I appreciate you. Look, this is a big week in tech. If you've been reading The Verge, you know Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference is this week. It's the annual event where developers come from around the world, so Apple's top executives can tell them which new features are coming to this year's iPhone and many years later to the Mac. Well, one of this year's big announcements, I don't know if you saw this, but it was group FaceTime. Two people, three people, actually up to 32 simultaneous participants. Or more likely, one other person and 30 grayed out squares saying, you have a bad internet connection. But I thought about group video chat because on episode one of Converge with Seema Sestani, we talked about group video chat because that's what her app, House Party, does. Group video chat in and of itself isn't unique, but presence is. And in fact, on Monday, House Party, which I don't have insider information, but it must have gotten word of what Apple is going to do. House Party announced it was going to bring group video chat to the Mac. So House Party, which is a mobile app, is now going to have a desktop app as well. So a few months from now, you're going to have your pick of group video chat apps. One will have an emoji. The other will have a red solo cup that lives in your menu bar. It will be up to you to choose which you prefer. Well, what does it mean? Let me tell you what it means. It means that products that are discussed on Converge are likely to become system-level features of major computing platforms in as little as three weeks. So listen up to what we have to say here, folks, because it all comes back around faster than you might expect. And speaking of system-level features, on today's show, we have Mark Risher, Director of Product Management at Google. You might not know Mark's name, but you likely benefit from what he does. You see, Mark leads the account security and counter abuse teams at Google. And if you have a Google account, Mark is responsible for keeping it safe and keeping your spam in the spam folder. Mark has been at Google for about four and a half years. Before that, he founded a cybersecurity company called Impermium, which Google acquired. And before that, he worked at Yahoo Mail, where his title was Spam Czar, which is an amazing title. You know, the best part of this episode, and this is a true story, is that I got to call up Google and tell them that I would like a high-ranking executive to spend an hour of his life sitting in a room with me and playing a game called Spam or No Ma'am. And Google said, yes, that would be fine. And when could we do it? I honestly have no idea why they said yes, but we had a very good time. So listen to this episode and you'll come to understand the vast array of threats that you face every time you check your email. And then at the end, you get to listen to two grown men yelling no ma'am at each other. Thank you for respecting my artistic vision. It's time. 
time for another game of Converge, the show that is easy to win, but not impossible to lose. Each week, we bring on some of Silicon Valley's most fascinating personalities, and they compete to see how high they can go on the all-time Converge leaderboard. My guest today is Mark Rischer, a director of product management at Google and the person who leads the company's efforts to fight spam from getting to your inbox. Before joining Google in 2014, Mark co-founded the spam-fighting company Impermium, and before that, he was a spam czar at Yahoo. Mark, do you plan to mail in your performance here today on Converge? Absolutely not. I'm bringing it all. That's what I like to hear. Converge, of course, consists of three rounds, the big idea, the interview round, and the wild card round, and it's time to get started. The first game we play on every episode of Converge is the big idea. I asked you ahead of time to bring in your biggest and best idea of a non-self-promotional nature, and we'll pick it apart to see what's inside. Points will be awarded on the basis of originality, presentation, profit potential, and whether I personally agree with it. So, Mark, what is your big idea? Well, Casey, my big idea is that everything you know about passwords is wrong. That is indeed a big idea and a somewhat scary idea, I have to say, because I feel like I've spent a lot of time over the past few years trying to learn things uh, about making my passwords better. You've learned probably that you need more capital letters, more numbers, fewer numbers, some symbols, some punctuation, all of that. All wrong. It doesn't matter. Why is that wrong? Not that it doesn't matter, yeah. but that what most people are really dealing with, the real threat that they face, comes from two things. One is phishing, and the other one is password breaches or dumps, or basically places where your password gets compromised. And so in both of those scenarios, the number of symbols, punctuation, capital, lowercase, etc., is immaterial. It's not going to change anything. Right. So no matter how complicated my password looks, if I've used it five or six times and it gets breached somewhere, the attacker has that password and they're going to be able to get into my bank account or wherever else I might have reused that password. Exactly. And no matter how complicated your password is, if you type it into the attacker's site, then they have it. Which is the problem with the phishing attack. Exactly. So I imagine you might have ideas about maybe a better way of approaching uh, the password problem. Absolutely. And there's a a few different sequences for this or steps along the sequence for this. The first is, you know, we at Google and, and many other companies have realized that these complexity rules really aren't helping anyone. And in fact, they're counterintuitive. So part of what people don't realize is wrong is that making a longer and longer, more complicated password that's harder to remember leads you to be more likely to reuse it in every site. And so making it arbitrarily complex actually works against your goals. A second problem that we see there is uh, people work, sites work, and you see this oftentimes with like government sites and financial sites, that they, they sign you out automatically after just a few minutes. What that leads to is that you're just blindly typing this thing in again and again and again. On Google, we've actually taken the opposite approach. Once you sign in, it's very rare we're going to make you type the same password again on a similar machine. And so when you do so, it should feel special. It's a special moment. It's something you should pay attention and notice what's happening. That's interesting. So if you're doing it all the time, you're more likely to uh, fall for one of these phishing scams. Exactly. You kind of become blind to the the variations of that. Yeah. You, know, you could think as an example, if, if a website asks you to scan in your birth certificate, you would really stop and think about that. But if they ask you to just type in this muscle memory eight-letter password, you're going to do it again and again, and so you don't notice these clues and the subtle variants that might be indicative of something bad going on. Right. So, you know, I've, I tend to pat myself on the back for using a password manager. Uh, I have created a, a unique password for almost every single thing I've ever logged into by this point. Is that buying me any level of protection, or do you still look at that and think, nah, I still know a way to get into your account? That's absolutely helping. That's a good thing. 
thing. And that's the third piece of advice that everyone gets wrong, which is for well-intentioned reasons, 20, 30 years ago, they said, never write down your password. And it is true that there are some threats that happen when you've got a little sticky note on your monitor saying your password is 12345. But if you imagine the number of people in the world that can come and see that sticky note on your monitor compared to the countless number of people elsewhere in the world who might be remotely trying to break into your account while you're sitting here talking to me, it's a much, much different threat scenario. And so not writing it down, again, encourages bad behavior. It encourages you memorizing this one super clever password that uses dollar signs instead of the letter S instead of what you said that's much better, use a password manager. Right. By the way, it's very unsettling to me that you know that my password is 12345, so I have to change that like as soon as this recording is over. What you might want to do is put an exclamation point on the okay, end. Okay, that sounds like Because that's the other thing that happens with sites that require you to update your password every 60 days. People don't come up with a fresh, brand new, clever one. They put the number one on the end, and then a two, and then a two with an exclamation point, something that attackers can trivially work their way through. Right. Let me ask you about something else that my password manager has uh, enabled over the past year, which which I like and have read that it might be a, a better approach, which is instead of random sequence of characters, choose three or four words, separate them with hyphens. It's easier to remember because, you know, it's it's four words, you know, chair, dog, ball, hat, you know, separated by hyphens. That might be easier for me to remember than a string of characters. Does that buy me any extra protection or where do you sit on that that issue? Yes, in theory, except again, looking at the pragmatic threats is, is something that we spend a lot of time on at Google. So what is really more likely for your account getting compromised is not someone either guessing this string of arbitrary letters and numbers or words connected by dots or hyphens. It's one of those problems I mentioned before, you falling susceptible to phishing or uh, into a password reuse, password dump side of scenario. And so we've tried to emphasize less that, you know, yes, in a theoretical, mathematical, statistical world, like you're making a longer phrase, it's going to be better. But what is much more of a real concern is that you are that you're falling victim to this. So that's why on Google systems, we never trust just knowing the password by itself. In fact, you know, well over 99.9% of the time, even if someone knows your username, your password, and your phone number, they're not able to get in because we do secondary challenges, either explicitly, like we'll send something to your phone or make something pop up, or implicitly, where we're looking for behavioral signals and other different indicators that we can, that we can monitor and scrutinize for anomalies. That defends you much, much more frequently than trying to do these mental gymnastics of what's the XKCD one, like correct battery horse staple, I think, <laughs> right. that is stronger but maybe isn't necessary for the average user or even for a highly targeted user. Gotcha. So that's not maybe the, the cure-all that, that some people might hope that it is. Uh, I have two more questions about this. One is you guys relatively recently rolled out what I think of in my head as like extra crazy hard authentication for sort of high profile people, journalists, people who work in the government, anybody who might be prone to like a state sponsored attack. Can you explain a little bit about how this works? I have not implemented th uh, this with myself yet. Maybe I should like is maybe this would be a, a time to tell me that I should do this. Uh, but like, how, do, how does it work and how much pain does it introduce in my life if I, if I adopt this method? The product you're talking about is something we call the Advanced Protection Program. And the goal was 
actually came from a, a fairly interesting observation, which is, of course, we want to protect all of our users, and we do tremendous investments every single day to raise the bar for everyone. But we realize there are some users that, whether because of their prominence or their prestige or their visibility, or simply that they have a lot to lose, they're under an, ex- an extreme amount of risk either more likely that people are going to try to break in or that the impact if someone succeeded would be really outsized. For them, for that minority, that small group of people, activists, journalists, politicians, celebrities, etc., we created the Advanced Protection Program. And we have really three anchors to that product that make it so that you're really getting the best and the strongest protections that Google can offer. The first one ties back to something you said earlier, which is multi-factor authentication. This one, we go far beyond sending a code to your telephone and actually require a physical device. We call it a security key, and it's just like the key to your house. You either have it or you don't have it. And when you put it into the computer, either by plugging it into a USB port or we now have ones that are wireless that you can you know, press a button or hold against the back of your phone, it does two really interesting things. One is that better than a password, it's exchanging a, a very lengthy cryptographic key. But even more importantly, it changes the whole phishing dynamic. You know, with phishing, if, if your users are familiar with it, you probably are thinking you land on a website that looks like the login page for your bank, and there's subtle differences there that if you're paying attention, you might notice it's not. Maybe the URL is wrong. Maybe the logo is the old one. Maybe there's some you know, broken English in the description. But if you're not paying attention, you just blindly go through and do this. So the user, the person, has to recognize, is this the right site or not, before typing in his or her password. With the security key model, we flip that around. And essentially, the website has to prove to the security key that it is the right one. Otherwise, it can't get the password. So there's no way for the user to make a mistake. You can be drunk off your mind with your eyes closed, not paying any attention, and still it's the browsers talking securely to the device, to the security key, and that's where the exchange is taking place. Right. So there's actually sort of a new category of people who might be interested in this product is drunk people. We should have included them as well. So activists, celebrities, and yes, those (laughs) who are... Victim. Although it's hard to go out and buy a security key when you're drunk. So maybe plan in advance if you're planning on having a big weekend. So yeah, so, so you have the security key, and then that does uh, some extra mojo. So that's the front door. Yeah. That's the, the first part, because as much as possible, we want to prevent anyone getting into your system. However, there are additional ways that attackers gain access to, to systems. And so we also turn the knob up to 11 on a few other places. The second one is that we deal with other types of access to accounts. There's a protocol known as OAuth that is a way that websites can kind of programmatically access information. And this is with user consent, but sometimes users don't really understand what they're consenting to. So we've tightened that down and said essentially only certified and blessed applications can access your sensitive information. Because a lot of people log into other apps with Google accounts. That's right. So you log into other apps with Google accounts. That's actually something we allow because there's very low risk that's going on there. And in fact, we think we're boosting your security. If you log into a real estate site or a shopping site or a travel site with your Google account, you're actually going to be in a better protected place than if you create a fresh username and password for all the reasons we mentioned. But there are other things where maybe Maybe you're granting access to some you know, rinky-dink app that you found out there to access all of your photos or all of your, your Gmail messages. And in that case, with advanced protection, we do take an opinionated stance and say, we're going to protect you from doing something that we think you'll live to regret. Right. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then the third vector that we look at is in-product changes that we can make. So, for example, one that's top of mind is if you're a subscriber to – it's a free program, but if you opt into the advanced protection program, then the attachments to messages you receive in Gmail go through a more thorough, more deep uh, antivirus and malware scanning. And that's because that's another vector where people can fall victim. And the idea is that by packaging these three groups together, the secure access with security keys, the third-party access through, um, through the OAuth whitelisting and, and application lockdown – and the third category, which is the in-product enhancements, that we really are able to give you a much, much stronger, much more confident place to be. Right. And in so doing, deliver what we think is warranted if you're at that, that upper echelon of risk or impact. Right. So if you're if you're listening to this and you're a high profile person uh, or you're drunk, this is something to look into, uh, and I will be looking into it more. So to wrap this up, you, you started by saying everything we know about passwords is wrong. Like I, I think a lot of people are going to listen to this and, and say, well, like okay, Mark, like what do I do? So so like can you give them maybe the two three sentences about what to do if they've been uh, maybe a lack a little bit lax in their security up to this point? Mm. I'm tempted to frame it like Michael Pollan with like you know eat food. <laughs> yes. most Mostly greens, That'd not too great. much. You like, make a lot of money. I, I should have done that yeah. if I'd thought ahead. <laughs> and now I've set myself up even higher. <laughs> the advice would be, if we scope it to passwords, what it really is, is use a password manager, distinct ones on every site, and do it automatically. Yeah. All right. Very good. That brings us to the end of the big idea round. And it is now time to score you, Mark. Let's talk about originality. Listen, telling me everything I know about passwords is wrong, that came as something of a surprise, because again, it's something I've thought about a long time. So I have to give you a solid seven for originality, because I feel like you brought a lot to the table, particularly for drunk people. Presentation. I appreciate you have an engineer's mind and you are able to explain things in a very rigorously logical and systematic way that I appreciate as a journalist who frequently has to take notes and often gets lost with people who are maybe a bit more discursive. So I'm giving you a nine. Now we come to profit potential. Everything you just said sounds like it's been very expensive for Google. So while I'm sure it has led to more Gmail signups over time, I'm not sure that I can say this is exactly going to be gangbusters in terms of pure revenue. So I'm giving you a six. That brings us to the final score, which is do I personally agree with it? And I have to say, you convinced me. So I'm giving it a 10. Whoa. A rare occurrence here on Converge. Let's add it up. 32 points in the first round for Mark Risher. A solid score to carry with us into the interview round. The round where you attempt to charm our listeners in a way that burnishes your personal brand and improves your standing as a thought leader. Mark, your job is to oversee uh, spam fighting efforts at Google, uh, but you do security things as well. Uh, but but when on the subject specifically of spam, tell us how you go about sort of improving what Google does on that front day to day. To improve upon what we do in spam, it's a lot. It's a lot of data gathering, and it's trying to find tools that give us the leverage there. This is actually one of the areas where we've invested considerably and for a really long time in machine learning, which is a topic that everyone's talking about and not everyone's doing or doing correctly. And it's something that we've really matured to to quite a level because uh, because the stakes are so high and because the numbers and the volumes are so profound and pronounced that you couldn't deal with it by writing rules. Right. And uh, spam is a game where these bad actors are sending the same message to millions and millions of people. And you see it millions and millions of time. And 
you know, machine learning is just pattern recognition. So you're you're able to spot a lot of patterns that other people can't see just because you're sort of seeing so much. Yes, except that's what they were doing ten years ago, and we got hip to if you're sending the same message millions and millions of times, it's not that hard to stop that. So now what we see is bespoke customized messages, a million variations sent to a million people, each one getting it fairly, uh, actually truly unique to each person. And that's a different type of problem where you're then looking across this very vast sample space. Yeah. So you've been uh, fighting spam for a long time. Some might even say you have a single-minded obsession. So how did this come about? How did you get into this line of work? It was uh, by swinging the pendulum. So I had a small startup company based in Minneapolis, actually, and we were working in digital photography space. Nothing to do with this. Sold it off, and we're look. I was looking for the next challenge, and called a friend in the Bay Area, saying, "I hear that place is cool. What do you got going on?" And she said. Instead of trying something small, why don't you look at the other extreme? I've recently joined Yahoo Mail. We've got some great success. We actually have been the the best in this area for a long time. And you could try a project where you make a small change and help 250 million, 300 million people. So it was really that chance of going from running my own retail store as part of the proof of concept for this startup to making changes that a quarter of a billion people would see the results of. Right. And so from there, all, all the way to Google, where uh, I know Gmail has more than a billion users. The numbers keep right going up. Yeah. Yep. So you know, when I look at my spam inbox, the kinds of spam seem mostly the same to me that they always have been. But I, I've been wondering about how they might be evolving in ways that I can't see. And I think you just mentioned one of them, which that spammers are now using sort of variations on what they're sending out. But like, how else has spam evolved? How else, how else has it become harder to spot? Part of it is, what is it that we mean by spam? So frequently, the picture people have in their mind is this low-grade scattershot commercial messaging. The canonical example is Viagra, which became V1Agra, which became V.1.A.G, etc. And That still happens. It happens in the billions every single day around the world. And no one cares about that because we stop it. It doesn't get through. It's in the spam folder. On Gmail, I know that very few people ever even go to the spam folder because there is so little value that's in there. So that's not what anyone cares about. Even though the numbers are still vast and immense, they are somewhat immaterial because all that you care about is what gets through. What gets through these days in the commercial domain is much more tailored and customized. It's based on, you know, famously, some brilliant people, including Bill Gates and Paul Graham, the inventor of Y Combinator, have declared that they had a magical solution that would stop spam. Uh, With Bill Gates, it was this product called Caller ID, this idea that if we know the IP address that's sending it, then we'll be able to block it. And that did not work. And with Paul Graham, it was this idea of naive Bayesian classifiers, the idea that we would quickly find what are the most common words in good messages, what are the most common words in bad messages, and there would be a nice bimodal distribution you could draw a line between and throw out one half. Wait, that sounds true to me. That didn't work out? It didn't work out. With a naive Bayes, it lasted for... Um, for a few hours at least, maybe even a few days, until what happened was the spammers realized that they could put their message in the top paragraph and then put a few paragraphs of Shakespearean sonnets at the bottom or random prose or scraped news articles, and suddenly your naive Bayesian bag of words is saying, all right, I've got four pages of text here. The top is a little dodgy, but the next three pages look great. 
It would have been nice though if spammers had kept up with that and just sort of bring Shakespeare to more people. You know, think about how much good they could have done. They really could have done a lot more yeah. for this sad state of uh, English literature in this this modern day and age. All right, so that part did, that thing didn't work out. Sorry, Paul Graham. What happened after that was the advent of machine learning and looking at really big data and looking at it in a place where I think we can all agree there's we have a common enemy that we're interested in, in fighting. So there, what the issue was is saying. Each of these messages have something in common, but it's difficult to find what it is. Hmm. Let's let computers try to find these patterns across the broad, broad feature space. Right. What's interesting there is that it works really well when it works, and it fails in very interesting and very different ways when it doesn't. One of the biggest challenges with machine learning is you throw out explainability. People would come. I've had frequent uh, escalations from friends and families and other people around all these different companies where I've worked on this, where they say, why did you put this message in the spam folder? Or conversely, why is this in the inbox? And if you ask the machine learning, all you find is that it was 1,106 units from the decision boundary in an endimensional <laughs> hypercube, or it's because the fourth word on the seventh line happened to have two vowels, and that's statistically anomalous, neither of which gives people any sort of comfort and never really tells you what to do. So, Wait, I have to pause you there, because like this is this issue is so much more broadly applicable than email. You know, like so explainability is sort of the shorthand by which we refer to the ability of any algorithm to tell us why it made a decision that it made, yes, right? Yes. And uh, it's something, you know, Know, that that you can see all over the verge and, and in some of my writing about w- what algorithms are doing and man it's a problem because increasingly we're going to be relying on algorithms to do all sorts of things in our lives and I would love it if we could get to a point where we could hold the algorithm accountable and say like hey I subscribed to that newsletter right why did that show up in my spam folder that's yeah. right and that's the challenge with pattern matching that's the challenge where we talk about artificial intelligence and our company has done some amazing fantastic things but there are many naive implementations of these systems that are dumber than a 3-year-old like they're really just doing crude pattern matching and statistical uh, you know correlations and therefore are not able to make this generalized intelligence that we all expect and want our machines to be able to do they're really just saying 9 times out of 10 when this thing happens it means that and if you happen to be in the wrong set that's a problem. That's something you also touched on. This is certainly broader than, than spam. And in fact, I work and deliberately apply these techniques much more broadly than just Gmail. You know, at Google, we've tried to centralize this technology because we want to focus all of the brain power and all of the intelligence on the problem so it's reusable. And that's where whether someone is sending a message in one of our messaging products or commenting on a video or posting on Blogger or, you know, any of the different places it might show up, there's going to be some commonality to this. And that's what we're trying to find with this this vast pattern matching apparatus. Yeah. So interesting to hear that as these techniques evolve, as those filters have evolved, there are still false positives. Things get identified as spam that aren't spam. I mean, it's, a, it's like, I guess, a never ending game of cat and mouse. It's a never-ending game of cat and mouse, and it's something that people look at sometimes unfairly because humans make mistakes too. <laughs> so speak for yourself, Mark. Excluding you. <laughs> Thank you. Machines make mistakes, and everyone except for Casey makes mistakes. <laughs> and yet, we we frequently forget about that, and we swing from one extreme to the other. Yeah. You know, we're having a problem of leaking through. We need to put more technology on it. Now the technology has learned some bias, and it's not behaving correctly. We got to put more people on it. The 
reality is that the two have to work together. And actually, a, a field that I'm super interested in is what we call active learning, which is where you get a human in the loop with the machinery, and instead of just choosing one or the other, you're actually using the best of both. You can get tremendous leverage from that. You can have, you know, we've had examples where a domain expert spends a day just labeling 600 documents, then it goes into the ML expansion and we're able to get to 30,000 samples. And then we can train off of that in an ensemble method and kind of build and build and build beyond that. So like, what, like how are you using humans in the loop to, to build what you're building? Two different ways. I'm quite excited about this yeah. one, you can tell. Um, so I kind of think of, of push and pull. The issue is frequently in the spam or in these sort of abuse scenarios, the people that are doing human reviews are not highly trained. It's more of a call center type operation where you've got people going through routine explorations. What we're looking at with active learning is instead using domain experts, somebody that really understands the space. And the two models, the push and the pull, are one, the domain expert writes a, a pattern or a rule and says, I think that, uh, let's stay with spam email messages, I think that if there's a, a link that is, has never been seen before and there's lots of kind of exclamatory text around it about free and offer and discount, then that probably is going to be bad. They write that rule, submit that to a machine, which then goes and scours, let's say, 10 billion messages, which is you know a, a day's worth of traffic, <laughs> and um, and finds what what it'll get there, brings back the samples, and says, do you think this is right or not? So you're getting a lot of leverage because the human took a few steps, the machine does the expansion, and then it comes back. That's much better than a queue where someone's just saying yes, yes, no, yes, yes, no. The other model, same thing, just start the other way around. The machine hypothesizes a rule and comes back and says, Casey, we think that if the fourth word on the 10th line of an email message has two vowels, it's probably spam. And you as a domain expert say, that's a ridiculous rule. Cross that out and force the machine to learn a new set of rules. That, again, gives tremendous leverage because that's something that, if not caught, could lead to a rare but catastrophic false positive. And if you do catch it, you can get this chance to say, no, like focus over here. You're looking at the syllable count of words is not the way to find spam. Let's focus on something that's more material. Yeah. I mean, the idea that machines are now proposing spam rules um, is making me feel naive because on one hand, it seems obvious that you'd ask them to do that. But on the other hand, like, wow, right? You know, the idea that the machine comes to you and says, hey, like, here's what we figured out from looking at 10 billion spam messages. You know, a lot of the, the time, I feel like artificial intelligence is, is overhyped as a term, but like that's actually getting us much closer to what people think artificial intelligence is going to be, right? Absolutely. That's this this human in the loop type field. So active learning, online learning, and it's applied in, in many other places. I know Steve Jobs talks about that bicycle of the mind, this idea that like humans build tools that amplify their capabilities. And I think that really applies here where ML, which often in the popular media is treated like alchemy. Like I just take you know rocks and dirt and turn the crank and it comes out as gold. Uh, that's not reality. But if instead of putting rocks and dirt in there, you put you know dirty gold, or I don't know where the metaphor goes from here, but if you start in a place where, where humans have some intuition, you can get much better amplification of that and, and much greater leverage, not just there, but also you know telemedicine is doing things. Um, I worked on a project on robotics that was doing human in the loop. Like all of these different applications get much better scale. 
help. Right. So a couple uh, last questions here. You know, it wouldn't be a good discussion about security if we didn't scare people a little bit. So I want to ask, what is the next frontier? Are there areas where you feel like spammers or like state actors are ahead and and tech platforms are, are still kind of struggling to, to keep up? Like, like what are is there anything you're seeing out there that's keeping you up at night? Yes. Uh, we've talked a lot about commercial spam because it's obvious that someone can relate to and sometimes it's kind of funny, but that's not really scary. That's sort of an, an annoyance and it has the potential to lock you out of your account if it becomes overwhelming, but for the most part, it's really something that system administrators worry about, but end users don't. The thing that end users should worry about and that I worry about is these much more bespoke targeted attacks that are going after an individual. And we see this in a lot of different places in the communication space that I wouldn't classify strictly as spam. It's much more in the the phishing or other cases like business email compromise uh, where it's a more targeted attack. What's happening in these cases is when I mention phishing, what people often think of is, dear sir or madam, I am an oil minister with $35 million that I would like you to help me unload. And that doesn't work. What does work is taking your name out of a hat wherever I find it, going to your LinkedIn page and finding a few facts about you, maybe doing a little search and getting some other information, and then saying, dear Casey, you may remember we met a few weeks ago at Vox Media, and uh, at the time you would promise to tell me your social security number and then it just slipped your mind. Could you please remind me? I take it to the absurd, but you can imagine how you could do something that's much closer, like, hey, I'm going to meet up with you, like, remind me your mother's maiden name. Like, you know, I don't know what the questions are, but these social engineering attacks that they spend a few more minutes personalizing can then yield much, much more outsized rewards. That's that's their version of human in the loop. Right? That's their version <laughs> yeah. of human in the loop. Yeah, and business email compromise is particularly scary. This is a problem where recipients get a message that maybe pretends to be from an executive at their company or from the finance team saying, in famous examples, you know, send me those tax forms. And it's a near duplicate. It's not C-A-S-E-Y, it's C-A-S-Y, and I, I just don't see it. Or it's got maybe even the Cyrillic letter E instead of the, the Latin letter E. And so I wouldn't even recognize that that's different. In Gmail, we've built a bunch of features in both our web client and our iOS and Android apps that identify when you're getting messages from a doppelganger, something that looks close but isn't. But that's just one of the many dimensions where we've been quite concerned about this impersonation of pretending to be someone else and asking for sensitive information, which is much, much more rewarding. If I send out 10 million offers for generic Viagra, I might get a 10 people that respond, and I can sell them and make a profit of a very small amount that basically covers you know, my, my time. If instead I send out 10 messages, each one asking for a wire transfer of five or six figures, like that's much more worth my time. Yeah, much better job. So yeah. aspiring spammers out there, that's where the money is. Let's go back to that profitability from yeah. the first act. Yeah, exactly. So here's my last question. Uh, sometimes when someone sends me an email, and I hate that email because it's from a mailing list I never subscribe to, I report that as spam. Is that bad? Absolutely not. It's oh, good. it's good. So reporting things as spam is the best signal that you can give to us. We are processing literally millions and millions of messages every second. And so it's very important for us to get these signals if we might have gotten something wrong, in part because it's usually, even though I said they're customized, they're not a single point. There's a campaign that's going on, and the earlier someone lets us know about it, the faster our systems and our people can respond to it and take action on it. Right. I, I'm speaking particularly of the case where, like, some 
somebody wants me to write about something, and for some reason, instead of just sending me one email, they like subscribe me to their mailing list. So you know, it's not spam in the sense that they're sending it to 10 million people, but I consider it spam in the sense that I don't like it. We use that information as the strongest signal. So for staying in spam and the commercial kind of annoyance and abuse type area, the strongest and almost the only signal we care about is whether users want to receive this or not. We're not making a value judgment over whether it's a good newsletter. We're saying 10 out of 15 recipients say they don't want to get this thing, so we're going to take a heavy look at it. And that's also a signal we give back to publishers. So we've invested in all of these these tools, such as the Postmaster tools and our transparency reports, so that commercial email senders know that users don't want it. In the past, they didn't realize. So they were sending out their newsletter happily to everyone out there. People are marking it as spam. Then it's getting put into the junk folder and no one gets to see it. Now we present that information back to the sender and say, it's not us. The users are telling us that that's not a newsletter they want to receive. It would be fun if you, at the end of the year, you guys posted like a list of the most hated emails in America. Just like the email that made the most people click the report spam button. Something to think about. Oh! You know what that sound means. It's time for the lightning round. In the lightning round, your job is to answer as many of these questions as you can in 60 seconds. You are allowed to pass, but if should you do so, you will forfeit the question. Also, it's uncommon that anyone passes. Let's go ahead and put 60 seconds on the clock and get started. Have you ever eaten Spam the food? Nope. Hint water or LaCroix? I take tap water. Preferred flavor? Plain. How many Spam messages do you get a day? Zero. What's something that should definitely be on the blockchain? Ooh, you stumped me. Kittens, I think. (laughs) Do you ever report legitimate emails of spam just because the message made you mad? Yes, I do. Should it be illegal to write someone and say, hey, just bumping this to the top of your inbox? I do it all the time. (laughs) Last show you finished on Netflix? 3%. What's the average number of privacy policy update emails that people receive because of GDPR? What's GDPR? <laughs> Last good book you read? Uh, oh, I'm reading Earthsea right now by Ursula Le Guin. I've heard good things about that. How about Westworld? You're watching Westworld? I missed the second season. All right. Do you have um, a go-to Spotify or YouTube music playlist? There's one on Spotify called The Daily Mix. Well, unfortunately, that answer came in after our time had already expired. So <laughs> the answer does not count. That was a score of 11 for the lightning round, which is a high score. Now we come to the wild card round. In the wild card, we reach into the Convergitron 5000 and play a game generated by some of the world's most sophisticated algorithms. We selected spam or no ma'am. You've got spam. Now in spam or no ma'am, we will present one another with five pieces of spam. Some will be taken from our actual Gmail spam filters. Others will be fakes that we created to try to fool one another and create an atmosphere of mutual distrust. I will read you the subject line and a few sentences from the email in question. If it's real, yell spam. If it's fake, yell no ma'am. Then the tables will turn. You'll read me an email and force me to guess whether it's real or fake. We will continue this process until we have reached inbox zero. Do you have any questions? No ma'am. Very well. I will now read you the first email. Subject line, feisty-minded girl. Feisty misspelled with the I coming before the E. Me, I'm all about meeting new men and just enjoying the moment. You might be my type of man, but I still have to see for myself, lol. Anyway, how would you like to meet up at my place? And two is a number two. Hmm, this one's going to be tough uh, because I don't know so much about your emailing history. Uh, I'll go with spam. Correct. That is actual 
spam, and it made me happy when I read it in my spam folder the other day. All right, it is now your move. Subject, I need your urgent reply. Message as follows. Good day. First, let me start by introducing myself as Ms. Susan Shabangu, a mother of three children and the Minister of Women in the Presidency of the Republic of South Africa since May 2014. Hmm. You know, it sounds like it could be from a a novel that you're working on, but I'm going to guess spam. Correct. Ah. We're one for one. Though funny story, when I was working at uh, Yahoo Mail on spam, I received a LinkedIn request from the IT manager of a bank based in Lagos, Nigeria, who said, what can I do? I have no way to write to any of my customers. <laughs> Everything I try to send gets immediately bounced back to me or put into the junk folder. That's very and we sad. worked really closely with him trying to figure out how his legitimate messages could get through. What was the answer? We solved it for you. All right. Well, that was nice. Machine learning, machine learning. Machine learning is the answer. There you go. All right. Spam number two. Subject line. Good evening. And from the email. Breaking news. This is to inform you that the higher authorities that is in charge of international transaction has this morning declared that you will receive 1,500,000 United States dollars through Western Union money transfer government office only as compensation for your past efforts here in Benin Republic. I do know that United States dollars are one of the most popular currencies around the world. And so uh, I'm tempted to say that that's a legitimate offer, but something about it just didn't sound quite right. So I'll go with spam. The answer was no, ma'am. And the reason the spam was real, but it did not actually have a subject line. So that's an easy mistake to make. I can see how you made it. But nonetheless, you've lost the round. And now we go back to you. Hmm. All right, I better up my game. (laughs) There's one here where I really only have the subject line. Because due to data privacy restrictions, I did not feel it was appropriate to bring the rest of the message. Understandable. That subject line, though, is Stephen Hawking predicts this pill will change humanity. Well, I know that Stephen Hawking regrettably recently passed away. And so the idea that he's still making predictions here at this late day in 2018 strikes me as unlikely. So I'm going to say no, ma'am. That's incorrect. This was a legitimate spam message extracted from the number of bulk filters. People are still dishonoring the memory of Stephen Hawking in this way. Not only that, but they spelled the word pill with the number one instead of the letter L. I don't know what is more upsetting. It's probably dishonoring the memory of Stephen Hawking. Probably that. Uh, All right. Well, I think we're all tied up then. Now, here is another one. Subject line, cortadora de perfiles de aluminio a un precio increíble. And uh, from the message, video demostración. Si no puede ver el video, click aquí. Tu navegador no soporta el video HTML5. It is important to click when you want to view an HTML5 video. It is. So I'm going to say that's a no man. <sighs> it's spam! Oh. That is a real Spanish language spam. I don't know why spammers are emailing me in Spanish. Maybe they know that my accent is that good. But what can I tell you? So with that, it is now your turn to give me an email. Subject line, suspicious activity in your account. The body of the message. Hi, Mark. We've detected suspicious activity in your account, comma, and then it has the account. Someone else might be using your account. Click here to secure your account. I mean, that sounds very... Very authentic. I guess the question is, is it so pedestrian 
that you assumed I would just believe it was spam, even though it was just easy fake spam for you to create. But I'm gonna go with spam. This is no ma'am, but sort of a trick question, because how would you know? And the point is, on these messages, we're no longer seeing all of these ridiculous examples in high volume. What we're seeing instead is things that boost the exact template from a legitimate message, just changing the destination of the link. Uh-huh. All right. Well, fair enough. Well, I can't believe it, but we're still tied at one. Hmm. This game has proven to be one of the most difficult we've played in the history of Converge. And that brings us now to message number four for you, Mark. Subject line, going out of business, scarves.net. The message, scarves.net, is going out of business. We're liquidating our entire inventory of scarves at a ridiculous closeout price, just $5 per scarf. That is up to 88% off. This is no joke. Well, judging by people on the radio can't tell, but the infinity scarf you've been wearing for this interview, I have to assume you are an aficionado of many types of scarves and probably a scarves.com frequent shopper as well. That's accurate. That said, there was something fairly excessive about the message that makes me think it may still be spam. No, ma'am. That one is a real email. It was just sent to the wrong email address. Uh, Tragic. (laughs) So that one showed up in my inbox intended for someone else, and we are still tied at one. This is turning into a real nail-biter. All right. Let's hear it from you, Risher. Subject. Deals to get you packing. And the body of the message contains only the following. Get up to 50% off your next trip. Member-only deals. That If I saw that in my inbox, I would say, don't want that in my inbox, and I would report it as spam, so I'm going to say spam. That was a totally legitimate message from a travel site. The rest of it was pictures of destinations I might want to go to, and I don't think it was particularly compelling, but it was real. There's a real email. This is incredible. All right, we're now in sudden death because this is the last email that I have for you. Subject line. Our bodies belong together. Can't deny it. From the message. I can't get you out of my head. What did you do to me? You got a big talent there, handsome. Don't let it go to waste. Gotta be spam. That is actually spam. All yeah. right. Finally, I'm back on the board. <laughs> so you scored one. And now I guess it's up to me to see if I can tie this up. Uh, subject line. Money. I like it so far. Body of the message, and I should note this is in all caps, so maybe I should shout it. Have you lost any of your money to scammers before? Email back to us now for your lost money back to you, scammers. I'm going with spam. That's correct. And we're tied at two! And that brings us to the end of the wild card round, a masterfully fought game of Spam or No Ma'am from you, Mark. And with that, we now go to the final scores for this game of Converge. Mark, I'm ready with final scores. You scored 44 points today to my two, and that makes you the winner of this episode of Converge. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I've never been this happy in my whole life. <laughs> uh, thank you for coming in and, and telling us about what you're doing to fight spam and keep things secure. Do you have a, a final message uh, for people at home? The final message for people at home is that security is actually quite fun. 
There's really fascinating challenges and problems going on, and one thing about it is this adversarial nature that there's someone out there really trying to get past you, and you do something, they do something, you do something. So it's a fascinating field. I hope all your listeners stop whatever they're doing and immediately come and apply for jobs and come and join us in this really virtuous fight. That seems like a fair fair request. Mark, thank you for making content with me. Thank you. That's today's show. My thanks to guest Mark Risher, both for appearing on the show and for guarding my inbox 24-7. Mark, while you may have defeated me today, you have provided me with valuable data, which I will use to train my algorithms, gradually eliminating your advantage until you can be replaced. Thanks, as always, to my engineer, Jeremy Dalmas, and my editor, Andrew Marino. If you like today's show, it would mean so much to me if you threw it a rating on Apple Podcasts. That helps people find us. And if you didn't like today's show, my name is Ashley Carmen, and this was Why'd You Push That Button. Hey, how's this show going so far? I want to hear from you. The controversy over the laugh track continues. You know, it was such a trending topic on social media that Facebook actually killed trending topics last week. That's how explosive this thing is getting. So anyway, email me. I'm Casey at TheVerge.com. I'm at Casey Newton on Twitter. And you can tweet about the show using the hashtag Benghazi. If you want even more of me in your life, I write a daily newsletter about social networks and democracy called The Interface. You can find the link at my Twitter bio. And until next time, the Convergitron 5000 is closed. Game over. This episode is brought to you by Starbucks' new Chicken Bacon Ranch Frappuccino. Layers of fresh-brewed cappuccino flavor combined with savory hand-batched flavor-infused chicken, ranch seasoning, and two slices of crispy applewood smoked bacon. That over 1,200 calories, the Bacon Ranch Frappuccino makes for a great lunch on the go. Starbucks, it's mostly sugar. All right, that was another fake ad. Uh, we still don't have a sponsor for the show. We're just kind of doing it for freezies right now. So if you've got, I don't know, a million dollars in liquid currency and want me to say words out loud on the show, DM me.